This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, activists have designated August 15th a National Reparations Day, with protests targeting Christopher Columbus and Donald Trump. A former political prisoner says folks are fooling themselves if they think Joe Biden will fix the criminal injustice system. And we'll have some comments on Washington's Cold War against China. But first, the institution of policing in the United States has been buffeted by the most massive demonstrations of the 21st century. The wave of protests began in Minneapolis with the police killing of George Floyd. Adam Bledsoe is a Minneapolis native who teaches at the University of Minnesota. Bledsoe has put together what he calls a syllabus on the Minneapolis uprising. Minneapolis is a city, and St. Paul as well. Neither one of those has ever been majority black. But what you see historically is that even without a black majority, a very, an even very small black minority has been at the forefront of a lot of changes, You know, whether it was with labor movements, neighborhood-based movements, previous uprisings, and things of that nature. Minneapolis and St. Paul have both been very active. You know, black communities have been very active. And that goes back, you know, at least 100 years, you know, if not a little bit longer. Um, you know, you can even look at uh, in the 1860s prior to the Civil War, you know, there were abolitionist tendencies. There were small civil society interest groups chaired by, led by black people that were also sort of at the forefront of, of pushes for abolition, suffrage, following the civil war and things like that. So, you know, I think it is understandably kind of confusing to people who aren't familiar with the, with the city uh, or familiar with the Twin Cities that they would ask, you know, why, why Minneapolis? But, you know, even kind of a brief glance at the history of the cities, both Minneapolis and St. Paul, you'll see that it's not unusual for uprisings, political organizing and things like that to take place. Well, one of the things that stands out in Midwest cities, in states that don't have large black populations, places like Milwaukee and Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. is that the incarceration rates for blacks in those cities is astronomical compared to the rest of the state. Absolutely, yeah. And that's kind of one of the things, whether it's incarceration or police abuse, police violence, education rates unemployment rates, poverty rates. That's one of the things that you'll see in Minneapolis. Is why I think that's another reason why we see that in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is one of the most unequal cities racially in the country, but the Midwest is very much a, a culprit of those conditions. And like you said, whether you're talking about Milwaukee, Detroit, Cleveland, all these places are intensely segregated and intensely unequal and intensely anti-Black. You know, I think a lot of us in the Midwest who maybe haven't lived in the South or aren't familiar with the South, people want to kind of point the finger at the South and say the South, the Southeastern region, Deep South region, is the one that has the racial problems. But if you look at statistically uh, or experientially, 
what black people have gone through in the Midwest, it's in some ways worse than it is elsewhere in the country. Why did you put together this Minneapolis uprising syllabus? Well, you know, with the impetus for it, one of the things that really spurred me to do it was I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's from Charlotte, North Carolina. And this friend said to me, you know, I don't understand how this is happening in Minneapolis. I have a hard time understanding how blackness works or moves in a city like Minneapolis. And, you know, I grew up here. I left when I was 18, but I've come back recently, you know, to work at the University of Minnesota. And so I've had really a lifetime of experience here. And it kind of tripped me out because I've always thought of Minneapolis as a space that has been thoroughly imbued with blackness, black people, black culture. And when I thought, wow, you know, if this person thinks that and this person, you know, highly educated, very much keyed into linked into black movements, black culture, black history. If this person thinks that, then I'm willing to bet a lot of people, if not a majority of people who are not in the city of Minneapolis, uh, think this as well. So I started to think, well, what, you know, what would be the best way of kind of helping people understand what's going on? And I thought I'm already in the initial stages of working on a book project, looking at the history of political organizing in the Twin Cities. So let me kind of speed that process up and use my own sort of resources and ideas for understanding this to help people contextualize what's going on. So that was sort of igniter, if you will, that got me moving on it. And then really, you know, I just wanted people to understand the conditions that Black people have lived in historically in the Twin Cities and what they've tried to do about it before so that we don't think that this is something that just came out of nowhere. Right? There, there's a longer history of, of political organizing in the Twin Cities that has very much laid the groundwork for what we're seeing now. What was striking to many of us in the early days of the uprising, the takeover of that police precinct house, was how many different kinds of people were involved in that action. Not just Black folks, not just white folks, but a Mm -hmm. whole panoply of folks. And it looked like they'd been engaged in some kind of activity with each other for some time. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that people have rightfully been pointing out about what's going on is that it is very much a multiracial sort of, I guess, coalition, if you, you know, if you want to call it that, that has taken to the streets and has held the streets, right, for the past two months. And historically, again, that's not unusual. Black political organizations, black social movements, black communities have had to broker alliances with people, with non-black people, whether they be white Indigenous and the indigenous community is one that I think also deserves to be sort of highlighted in in this situation in that there are whole neighborhoods, the Little Earth neighborhood, whole neighborhoods of, of indigenous Americans, American Indians that have historically over time allied themselves with the black community as well, you know, have addressed issues like police violence housing insecurity, you know, the American Indian movement actually started in Minneapolis. So along with indigenous Americans, indigenous populations in in the city, there has also been attempts on the part of black Minneapolitans and St. Paulites to ally to reach out to white working class communities. And I think that's who we're seeing in the street right now in a lot of ways. I think that's something that I certainly hope to see continue. We'll see how long this holds on for and, and continues. But I think it's simultaneously a product of the fact that, like you mentioned at the beginning of, of this interview, the black population of Minneapolis is, is relatively small, but also it's a product of, again, the sort of uh, groundwork that has been laid in previous instances of uprising, organizing that have taken place in the cities. 
Well, Minneapolis does stand out as the home of the largest Somali population in the country. And in your syllabus, you've got an article that was written by Vanessa Taylor. It's titled, Why Minneapolis? How Deep Surveillance of Black Muslims Paved the Way for George Floyd's Murder. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I think that article does a good job showing how the layers of anti-blackness and the layer of state surveillance, violence, have different ways of sort of affecting black population, whether it's street level sort of surveillance, right, police harassment, the disruption of everyday life, or if we're talking about the state surveillance, you know, at at an even deeper level of suspected terrorists, I guess, suspected agents of terrorism in East African population here in Minneapolis. And so I think including the Somali population, including the East African population generally in the cities was something I wanted to make sure I did because, again, as you mentioned at the beginning of of this interview, roughly 20% of the population of Minneapolis is Black. And a good number of those would be people who are not, I guess, for lack of a better term, Black Americans, right? People who have lived here for generations or trace their heritage back to the U.S. South. So a good number of the people who would be included in the Black population would be Somali and East African people. So I wanted to make sure that we, we didn't lose sight of that, right? And, the, and then we talked about it because, again, from what I've been seeing and what I've been hearing, it's a lot of them that are in the streets right now, too. It's a, it's a lot of Somali residents, East African residents of South Minneapolis that are also in the streets protesting right now. So I think their story very much deserves to be included in, in what's going on right now. And among the Somalis in Minneapolis is that city's congresswoman, Ilhan Omar. Absolutely, yeah. And I think she's a great example of somebody who has roots from Somalia, but who has very much, I think, embraced kind of this wider sort of Pan-African culture. You know, I, I don't think anybody would deny the fact that she's a black woman representing a majority person of color district in Minneapolis. So her story is a great example of why I included some of the history and experiences of Somali Americans in the syllabus as well. Not too many weeks into the rebellion, the Minneapolis City Council or members of the council announced that they were going to get on the path to disbanding the police. Lots of us are skeptical that a bunch of Democratic politicians would ever do that. Oh, yeah. We're all hopeful and skeptical at the same time, right? I think that having had conversations with people from the grassroots-based organizations that are pushing this police abolition agenda, I think they are, one, really very excited that this is even a conversation that we're having first, but then also very wary in understanding of the fact that oftentimes elected officials say things, right, that they don't always necessarily intend on following through on. And so I think this isn't the end of the story. I think the city council announcing that they are committed to uh, abolishing the police is a great start. But I don't think it's something that it's not over. That struggle is not over by any means. There's still the issue of changing the uh, city charter. There's still the issue of gauging feelings on the ground among Minneapolitans. There's still the issue of creating the necessary sort of relations on the ground to get that implemented and actually create something else that doesn't become co-opted and just sort of morphs into a new version of community policing. So, you know, again, uh, I think it's exciting, but I also think that you're right to be skeptical and it's understandable that you would be skeptical because this isn't something that can be co-opted and taken in a different direction. 
You say that activists, community folks, are still holding the streets. Describe to us the level and kind of organization that's going on. Well, you have a number of different things going on, and the news itself has kind of panned away from this. Uh, I think the mainstream media stays with things while they're sort of sexy, can captivate people as being new or novel. And once those things become sort of commonplace or understood as not new anymore, they kind of go away. The media kind of turns away from it. But the mutual aid autonomous zones that have been created as a result of the damage that was done to a number of the businesses in South Minneapolis, the Midway area of St. Paul, North Minneapolis, those are still happening. They're still taking donations. They're still providing the necessary goods and services to community members around the Twin Cities. The community patrols that were happening, both armed and unarmed, right at the neighborhood level and kind of at the wider city level, have also continued. That's something that's still going on. And then on top of that, protests are still continuing. But again, the the news hasn't paid as much attention to them. And so in addition to the community patrols and the autonomous zones, mutual aid services that have been set up, the question of homeless encampments has also continued, right? And you have people who are working very intently on the ground to provide shelter to people who are houseless. And again, the number of houseless people is largely comprised of indigenous and African, Afro-descendant Black uh, peoples. So you have things that had garnered attention early on and are not being talked about in the mainstream media, whether local or national right now, but are still very much active. So I think it's something that is not going to hopefully go away anytime soon. I think what we're seeing is a larger commitment, a longer commitment to staying in the streets and to trying to create the relations and services, institutions that we want to see long term in the community. Based on past, a long history of urban rebellion in the United States, I'd expect that Minneapolis is awash in federal and state agents of all kinds. It certainly was, right? The National Guard got called in. From what I can tell, there has not been the explicit sort of overt presence of federal agents the way we're seeing things in Portland and the way that the president is currently talking about deploying to places like Chicago. But absolutely, I think it would be foolish of us to assume that there aren't larger federal forces at play here trying to parse out the situation, understand what's going on, and ultimately have a hand in sort of either quelling what we're seeing in the streets or co-opting it in some way. So again, from what I can tell, the Federal presence has not been as overt as it has been in other cities, with the exception of the the National Guard having been deployed here for a number of days. And tell us the purposes that you hope your syllabus will be put to. So I'm hoping that the syllabus, one, serves to inform people about the conditions that have led to what we're seeing, right? So in addition to the history of the political organizing that has taken place in the Twin Cities, I also have a number of pieces in there, articles documentaries, podcasts, et cetera, that really talk about what Black Minneapolitans and St. Paulites have lived through over the past generations, right? So looking at questions of education, healthcare, policing, and what I want people to kind of take away, people who might not be involved or familiar with the Black community, or people who, again, are not from the Twin Cities and don't have a sense of what Black life is like here in the Twin Cities. I want people to understand that a lot of the same issues that Black people are dealing with in places like St. Louis, Missouri, right? Ferguson, Missouri, New York City, Chicago. A lot of these same issues are present here. And so, again, I understand why people would be 
confused or unsure of why this started in Minneapolis, I'm hoping that the syllabus kind of gives some context to why it happened in Minneapolis. On top of that, I'm also hoping that uh, it can be used by people who are active on the ground here in the Twin Cities to kind of take a look at what political struggle has looked like over the past hundred years. You know, to to look at what co-optation has looked like over the past hundred years, what successes and gains have looked like in the Black community over the past hundred years to kind of get a sense of what they might be facing and what the next steps might be for the struggle. That was Professor Adam Bledsoe speaking from Minneapolis. The Brooklyn-based December 12th movement is calling for a national day of demonstrations to demand reparations for slavery and racist oppression. Roger Wareham is a longtime activist and human rights lawyer. We're calling it on this day partly in commemoration of the 18th anniversary of the first National Reparations Day march that was held actually on August 17th in 2002. It was called the Millions for Reparations. And it was a rally that was held at the mall in Washington, D.C. with about 40,000 people who attended around the issue of reparations. When at that point in time, reparations was at that point a very current issue, a hot issue, much as it is now. And so we decided that given everything that is going on now, given all of the events, the resistance around the country, that we thought and we think that reparations is the issue that focuses all of the different manifestations of oppression and the resistance to it that we're finding now. So August 15th, Saturday, August 15th, we're calling a National Day for Reparations. In New York City, we're going to actually have a demonstration at Columbus Circle in front of Trump International Hotel. We chose that spot for two reasons. One, because Trump is the president of the United States. And in the final analysis, the demand for reparations is a demand on the U.S. government. We also picked that location because it's half a block from the statue of Christopher Columbus, who really was the initiator of the mob of Africans to the Western Hemisphere in in terms of his so-called quote-unquote discovery. So we thought it was really appropriate that we have it where the initiator is and the most current representative of our oppression is and from whom is due as a representative of the U.S. government the reparation. So August 15th, for those who are in New York City, August 15th, 2 p.m., 59th Street and Broadway in front of the Trump International Hotel. But we call it a National Day for Reparations because just given the conditions, we didn't even want to put people through the idea of coming together in Washington, D.C., for those who might have ventured to do that. And what we're asking is that people who support the demand for reparations and think it's important for this National Day for Reparations to do something in their area around the issue of reparations, whether it be a street demonstration or whether it be a a webinar, a Zoom, a teach-in, to chime in and and we'll let folks know what's happening around it. We know the um, National Black United Front, which was the organization that co-organized that 2002 rally with with us, the December 12th movement, they're having a motorcade in Houston to a place called Sugarlands. Sugarlands is an area outside of Houston where when they were getting ready to do construction, they found the bodies of at least 95 black folks who had been convict slave laborers. And as you know, after the Civil War, 
white folks found another way to extract free labor from us. And so if you got picked up for violating a law, which could be as simple as vagrancy or not having a job, you could be arrested for that. And then the law enforcement authorities would lease out the arrestee to whoever needed work done. And in some ways it was worse than slavery because there was no incentive at that point to even keep people alive. They're just working to death and then replace them. But they found at least 95 bodies, and I think there's more. So this has been in Sugarland. It's been a real issue down in Houston. So they're going to have a motorcade to Sugarland in terms of the whole issue of oppression and reparations. And I know in Atlanta they're planning a couple of things. So there's things going on around the country. In Chicago, the Pinkova is planning something. And so that's the, the whole idea. We're getting the word out to people so that all around the country, people continue to raise up the issue of reparations and help focus a lot of the street activity and resistance that's been going on. You know, our concern is that as that ebbs and flows and wanes, where do we go from here? What do we do? And we think that the demand for reparations focuses that in terms of who's the source of our historical oppression, what's the source of our current oppression, and then what's one of the, the key elements in terms of resolving the damage that has been caused, the wounds that have been caused, how do you begin to repair that damage, and reparations is it. So we um, recently had a webinar with uh, two council people from Asheville, North Carolina, which just passed the reparations bill uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it's one that, that its prologue begins with really a listing of all the different ways that we've been under attack since we were brought to this hemisphere and an apology. And then they set up a commission to redress the inequities. And so that's going to be the proof is going to be in at the point when that commission is put in place, what do they actually do? But it was passed by city council. There are only two black members of a seven member city council and it was a unanimous elite passed bill. So we thought that that was important in terms of pushing that forward. We've spoken with the folks in Evanston, which had the first reparations bill, and in Chicago, which also has one. So there's things going on around the country. There's a whole motion around that issue of, of reparations. And I noticed uh, somebody sent me the other day a picture in New York City, in, in Brooklyn, where there was a billboard taken out by a Black Channel, I think it's called, talk about reparations, cut us a check. So it's, it's a live issue. We've got to help focus all the activity that's going on around the country. And so we're expecting a lot of people to come out. We, we hope that your listenership in the New York City area will come out. And for those who are hearing you around the country and around the world, that they conduct some activities. I know some people in the Caribbean are going to be doing something out of camaraderie around that. Some folks in the U.K., they have their own reparations day August 1st, but they said that they're going to be doing some activities as well. So we think that it's important. I was listening to an interview with uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, the famous, tremendous historian in, in it. He's saying reparations is the order of the day. So that's the context in which we're asking people to participate, to come out. If they come out, mass social distancing. But I think making a statement to Trump who in some ways is on the ropes, but you know he never gives up in terms of his desire to maintain his dictatorship. It's important to do that, particularly for folks in New York City who remember when the Central Park Five were arrested and convicted of a crime they did not commit, that even before they were indicted, Donald Trump had taken out a full-page ad calling for reinstitution of the death penalty so that these five young 
black and Puerto Rican men could be executed. He's never apologized for that. His position still is that they did it, even though all the evidence shows that they didn't. And so while this case was still in court, we held demonstrations in front of Trump Tower calling for justice for the Central Park Five and reparations, which is in essence what reparations is, a repair for damage that has been done and injury that has been done for the Central Park Five. So we think it's really important to make that statement on August 15th. Only about a year ago, a bunch of Democratic presidential candidates were saying that they supported reparations, although their proposals really bore no resemblance to reparations as we have conceived it. But if, as Frederick Douglass says, the man who is struck is the man to cry out, then the people who are harmed are the ones who are supposed to structure reparations. So isn't it necessary that we establish the political legitimacy of reparations by holding a national black conference on reparations to formulate what it actually is so we don't have all these other folks coming in and saying i have a plan for black reparations well i think that's a good idea i think we can have regional and a, and a national and i think the point you're making is we have to determine what that is and the analogy i, I always draw is that i do criminal defense and i've never been in court where a person has been convicted the judge says to them well, what do you think your sentence should be? It doesn't happen like that. It's the victim who determines the sentence. And so I agree with you that we need to have that discussion. Back in 2001, we came back from the UN World Conference Against Racism, where we had taken 400 people to push for and succeeded in having the UN declare that the transatlantic slave trade and slavery were the crimes against humanity and that reparations were due to the descendants of the victims of those crimes. And there was a tremendous momentum that was building that got derailed for a while because the day after we got back, there were the attacks, the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in D.C. And we followed that up in 2002. I was one of the, the attorneys on the first reparations lawsuits that were filed against 17 multinational corporations for their involvement in the transatlantic state trade and slavery. And I bring it up because there was a whole discussion then among black people around the country. Do I get a check? Is it something collective? I mean, what forms it would take? So I think it's very important for that discussion to go on. A national conference would be good. But even on a local level, people are beginning to discuss, well, what would that be? How do we repair the damage and move forward? And is the best way of doing that of people individually getting checks or investment in institutions that will affect us collectively. And we think that the demand for reparations is a revolutionary demand because it puts a pressure and demand on this country that in some ways they're not going to be able to deal with. But the the demand is imperative. It has to be done. And I think that that's a good suggestion, having a national conference. But even before that, just people discussing it regionally and locally, and we pull all those together. I thought one of the important things when we talked with the council people from ASHA was in their legislation, they say, you know what, we're doing this, but it's really a federal and state imperative to deal with. But we're doing what we can with where we are, the small town in North Carolina 
this is what we see, this is what we're doing. And we think that that's important that people begin to take it up because it'll be those local motions that are going to push the national motion. Because as you said, in the final analysis, it's a national motion. And what's the status of the reparations bill in the House and the Senate? Yeah, it's H.R. 40 and the Senate one, I think, is S.S. 8003 being pushed by Cory Booker. They haven't come out of committee yet. Apparently, they I think they have more co-sponsors. This H.R. 40 is an improvement on the one that Representative Congress put forward because that one was just asking for a study. This one is requesting a study and then concrete proposals for remedies. So hopefully in this climate, it may get through the House. I don't have much hope for the Senate, but I think people are talking about it. I even saw an ad the other day an email where Human Rights Watch of all groups are calling for a reparations now petition to have people and organizations sign on as part of trying to push getting H.R. 40 and Senate bill through. So that's where those things are. And as you mentioned, last year, presidential candidates talked about it. I think in some ways it was just purely opportunistic way of how do we garner black votes by saying that we're for reparations with nothing concrete for that. I think that in this period of time, let's hold them accountable. I don't know what Biden is going to do, but that we put the pressure on every way we can. And in New York City, in New York State, there's an assembly bill that's being pushed by Assemblyman Charles Barron that calls for the establishment of a reparations commission, which is dominated by community groups, people involved in it, and has some governmental officials. But people should call their state assembly people to make sure that they support and they co-sponsor that bill. Because that's something that could be a reality in terms of New York State. So there's different things that people can do to show their support for reparations locally, uh, wherever your listenership is hearing it. They they should push it in their, their localities and nationally. And since that U.S. congressional bill calls for concrete remedial proposals, doesn't it make it even more imperative that the reparations movement get that process underway among black folks out there in the country? The Congress of the United States, including the Black Caucus, does not constitute black folks in America. (laughs) That's true. Any successful legislation is going to be driven by the motion in the streets, as with anything that happens in this country. When there's enough activity in the streets, the elected representatives are going to be forced to deal with it. So, yeah, the success of H.R. 40 or the Senate version of that is going to be tied to how active we are in making that demand known and letting elected representatives know that we're holding them accountable for that and that if it doesn't come up, that that's going to be an issue when they come up for re-election. But I think that we want people who are out in the streets now to also become politically educated to why it is important to make that demand for reparations so that when people talk about issues like defunding the police and redirecting funds, reparations comes at fulfilling all of that. And so our job as organizers is to mobilize people to make the demand for reparations as popular and as widely known as are just the term Black Lives Matter, that all those things are tied together. So yes, it's got to be heating it up 
in the streets and in making the elected representatives in both the, the Congress and in the state legislatures be accountable for fulfilling that demand. Yes, but if black folks don't spell out what we think reparations should be, then other people can just, and including black groups, can just throw every demand into the reparations bucket, say that everything is reparations, including things that could easily be passed by legislation without reparations. Right, and I think you're raising the point around we need to define what it is, and that's part of this whole discussion, that we make the demand, and in the process of making the demand, we're also engaged in the discussion of what it is so that no one else can come in and define it for us and tell us that, for instance, when we had the lawsuit back in 2002, part of the whole motion around reparations in that point in time was reflected in different municipalities passing non-disclosure bills that said that unless your company discloses to us what, if any, ties you have to the transatlantic slave trade and slavery, we will not do business with you. And it was from that kind of disclosure bills that it turned out that J.P. Morgan Chase had ties to slavery from one of the banks that they had incorporated, because they're all big conglomerates. And that at a point in time in the 1850s, that a certain number of enslaved Africans had been taken as security for a mortgage. And when the person defaulted on the mortgage, the bank owned those enslaved Africans. The Chase decided that their response to that was going to be they were going to create some scholarships for some people. Similarly, as Georgetown has said, that they were creating some scholarships for people whose ancestors made it possible for the university to survive in its early days. And that's, I think that that's the point you're making. The person responsible for the crime, the beneficiary of the crime, cannot define for us what that reparations will be, and it's imperative on us to do that. And so, yes, while we're making the demand, we're also engaging in that discussion, as I said, locally, regionally, and as your suggestion was, nationally. People who want more information can go to our website, d12m.com. That's the letter D, the number's one, two, the letter M is in Mary, Dot com to get more information on the National Day for Reparations, or they can call 718-398-1766. That's 718-398-1766. That was Attorney Roger Wareham speaking from Brooklyn, New York. Daruba Ben-Wahad is a former Black Panther and Black Liberation Army political prisoner. He spent 19 years behind bars before his conviction was reversed. Ben Wahad talked politics on Dr. Jared Ball's podcast, I Mix What I Like. If Biden was to get in there, you know, and, and we all know Biden's track record, and we all know that, that, that Biden's a crypto racist. We all know this. I mean, he's he weighed in on the wrong side of history since he was a senator. Just for argument's sake, we want to say that, that having, quote, a progressive president who then can make, quote, of reasonably liberal and progressive appointments to the federal court system. It does not necessarily follow that those appointees are going to deal with political cases as if they arose to a constitutional level that they have to overturn the status quo. And I'm gonna give you an example, a functional example, because this person might even be a Supreme Court nominee under a Biden. Let's look at the present mayor 
of Chicago. The present mayor of Chicago has been lauded as an LGBTQ and a sister who is black and she's elected to mayor. And you know, there's been all of these write-ups about how Chicago's gonna have a new mayor and a new day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now Trump has been sending troops sending a federal agents into different municipalities in order to, in Mufti, in order to suppress and intimidate protesters and dissenters. He sent them into Oregon, he sent them into Seattle, he's sending them into Chicago. And you know, this has brought Trump in at loggerheads uh, with various uh, municipal and state executive elected officials. In fact, here in Atlanta, the mayor has been ordered into negotiations with the governor of the state who wants to enforce different rules for dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, this sister said, she said that she would not, she's not opposed to Trump sending these anonymous agents into Chicago as long as they're going to assist local law enforcement and the local federal district agents in pursuing violent crimes. Now, we know historically that Nixon used the war on crime as a political instrument in order to pass the Omnibus Crime and Control Act in order to try to establish, a, and he failed, in order to establish his control over a national police force to create a national police force. And that omnibus crime and cloak, safe streets, acts, and all that stuff was aimed at the black community. It was the war on drugs was the mechanism by which the police were militarized. They were militarized uh, during the war on drugs. The prison, the prison industrial complex uh, grew to enormous gargantuan proportions under the war on drugs. Okay. And all of these efforts were led by who? They were led by black prosecutors. They were led by black political officials. They were championed by black legislators in the Congressional Black Caucus. And they have led to the devastation that we have in the black community today, to the militarized police, to unfettered police violence. They have led to all of these things. So now this woman said that she would be okay with Trump into putting these troops into her city as long as he was doing it for law enforcement purposes. She's an ex-prosecutor. Same way with Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris was the one that was packing the California jails with black flesh. Kamala Harris facilitated that. All of these dogs that masqueraded with wigs on and, and toupees, they were all servants of the police, the policemen's unions and associations. They all paid tribute to the police unions. Nobody could get elected in America in the urban situation unless they had police union endorsement. Now, how does the police union have so much power, got more power than the black community? How is it? So putting someone in office, and, and I'm quite sure Biden got into position and he was looking for a judge, looking around for a judge, he would have no hesitation in appointing a black LGBTQ pointy like the sister in Chicago for the Supreme Court judgeship and then have her vetted through Congress. And then she sits in the Supreme Court as the first, quote, black female LGBTQ person uh, was appointed by Biden. And everybody loves Biden. And watch the decisions that's going to come down from this sister. If she could go for Trump sending troops into her municipality under her jurisdiction, if she can go for that and say, oh, as long as he's doing it to fight crime, what would she do when the Supreme Court issue came up 
before her around political prisoners and shooting police and, and the police feeling that they're being attacked and that it's open season on the police and that therefore it has to be the decision made on this. Every judge has went down the line and has ruled in favor of the police whenever it's come to political prisoners. All of them, whether they were liberal or whether they were conservative, they all did, whether they were black or whether they were white. Because the issue of political prisoners goes far beyond just the mere appointeeship and the mere philosophy of the judges. The issue of political prisoners goes to the heart of U.S. treatment of African Americans' resistance and the radical tradition. It goes to the very heart of our relationship to law enforcement. So there's no judge on the planet that's going to say a Jaleel Montaquin should have been granted parole because the parole board was discriminating against them and the police union has should have no say-so in this they're not going to write no opinion like that, you see. Now, we could wishfully think, maybe because we're in this historical moment, I think a lot of the uh, discussion that we're having now is based on the fact that they do believe that white supremacy is a reformable paradigm. So if we start from that proposition, we, we lost. Setting the parameters of an issue, of a debate, is very, very important. You know, what is left and what is right, what is extreme and what is moderate, what is reformable and what is ridiculous. All of these things go into the debate. And the parameters of the debate have always been set by individuals in the so-called misleadership class that it's our duty to reform white supremacy. Now, I ain't never heard it being the duty of the slave to reform the plantation. You see, that's not our job. Our job is to escape the plantation. It's to get them off the plantation as soon as possible. If you can't get off the plantation, slay the slave master. One of the two. Either that, or we're just going to go on saying, hurry sundown, see what tomorrow will bring. And that's what your brother is saying. He's saying, hurry sundown and see what Biden will bring. Okay? Hurry Trump down and see what another cracker would bring for us. We'd have been here and did this, man. Come on. That was Doruba Ben Wahad speaking from Atlanta, Georgia. The wave of protests against U.S. policing and prisons has been keenly followed by the nation's two million incarcerated people. Sergio Highland filed this report for Prison Radio. I'm grateful that society is beginning to acknowledge some of the consequences of over-policing. But there needs to be a focus on the most direct consequences of over-policing, which is mass incarceration. I want us all to be able to put the pieces of this puzzle together, one section at a time, so we can understand the process in its entirety. Policing and incarceration are inherently bonded through the ideology of control and suppression. And neither one is any good for our community. People laugh when they hear others claim that we don't need the police. How will we prevent crime, they ask. But police and prison has never been about preventing crime. Let me be clear about this. Despite what you may think, police and prisons haven't always existed. But crime has. So how was crime dealt with before policing and prisons came into play? Crime is a public health issue. In fact, show me any crime, and I'll show you how police and prisons aren't the solution for dealing with it. Demanding that police departments be defunded is a critical and necessary first step in our journey, but it isn't enough. We must also demand that prisons be defunded as well. What we've been seeing on cell phone footage pales in comparison to what we see if prison videos were made available to the public. Nowadays, prison torture is applied in clever ways. 
Yes, prisoners are still beaten, starved, and denied medical treatment, but there are newer, more subtle ways to abuse prisoners. Sadly, since prisoners are almost always misrepresented as being thugs and criminals, most people feel that we're getting what we deserve. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime, is what they say. Even if George Floyd used counterfeit money, did that justify his murder? What if Eric Garner was selling loose cigarettes? Did he deserve to be killed? Did Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, and Tamir Rice deserve to be hunted down and slaughtered like wild animals? Why is America so mad at black people that you find any reason to justify treating us unjustly? The reason why many folks scoff at the assertion that we don't need police in prisons is because too many people can't imagine a world without police in prisons. And it's sad that with all the brilliant minds in existence today, society still chooses to take the easy way out. We throw away human beings as if they were trash. We lock them away and act as if the problem never existed. I even hear some of our so-called leaders claiming that we need prisons. Police don't prevent crime any more than prisons protect society. Police have a singular skill set, which is to terrorize, and a singular function, which is to serve as proxies for the rich and powerful. That's their history. And regardless of what you think, the police haven't been around for long. Neither have prisons. In fact, when the Europeans first created prison, it was solely for the purpose of strengthening monarchies by silencing political dissenters. Today, the rich and powerful use police and prisons in much the same way. We don't need to simply defund the police. We need to dismantle them. And the same goes for prisons. Community policing is the only solution to this problem. But community policing, despite what so-called experts say, doesn't mean that police officers become warm and cozy with the communities that they're policing. Instead, community policing means that we don't need a foreign occupying police force inside of our communities. If given the means, we can police ourselves because only we know what justice looks like for us. And we don't need prisons because our focus will be on restoration rather than retribution. The common sense behind reinvesting into black communities seems so painfully obvious that it sometimes causes me to wonder if our leaders, even our black leaders, truly ever want us to be free. My name is Sergio Highland, and you can follow me on Instagram at Uptown Surge. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist Margaret Kimberly took part in a globally watched web event that called on Americans especially to say no to the new Cold War. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Nixon went to China when I was a kid. It was said at the time that only a Cold Warrior could have pulled it off. Now, nearly 50 years later, the Cold War has been resurrected with a vengeance, and China has been declared an enemy of this government, and Americans are being whipped into a frenzy of hatred and suspicion against this nation. Now, whenever we see a reference to China in the corporate media, we always see the word Communist Party attached. This silly redundancy is war propaganda, along with every other smear and slur. We're told that one million Uyghurs are imprisoned when there is quite literally no proof of any such thing. 
China is the country which first experienced the COVID-19 virus, was the first to vanquish it, and has a low death rate of less than 5,000 people to prove it. We depend here in America on China to produce masks and other protective equipment, but China is declared the villain. A country that within one month of realizing there was a new communicable disease gave the world the keys to conquering it. Instead, the country which fails where China succeeds in providing for the needs of its people and their health is an international pariah, with most of the world barring Americans from travel and turning us into a giant leper colony. Trump, who speaks of the Kung flu and the Wuhan virus, but it is China which conquered the disease that has killed 130,000 Americans and forced a quarantine which has caused economic devastation to millions of people here. But Americans get nothing but war propaganda. Trump and Joe Biden outdo one another, bragging about who will be tougher on China. We saw the U.S. government violate international law again and close the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas. But the U.S. isn't alone. Its lackeys and vassals, commonly known as allies, follow the lead of the gangster state into spewing what can only be called war propaganda. Just to the north of here, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talks behind Trump's back, but never steps out of line. When Washington ordered Canada to arrest Meng Wanzhou, the daughter of Huawei's founder, they did just that. The U.S. accused Huawei of violating U.S. sanctions by doing business with Iran. There's nothing in U.S. or Canadian law which permitted her arrest, but like a good little puppet, Canada did as it was told. China retaliated and arrested two Canadians who remain under detention. But Trudeau doubles down and refuses to release her. Propaganda succeeds. It's kind of like a music that one hears over and over again. We remember it whether we intend to or not. And threats to prevent members of the Chinese Communist Party, some 100 million people, from entering the United States may seem laughable but the foolishness is serious and meant to get public buy-in for dangerous acts. That is why there are millions of Uyghurs in Chinese prisons. The charge is false, completely made up, like tales of WMD in Iraq, babies taken from incubators in Kuwait, Libyan soldiers popping Viagra pills, and Russians paying bounties to kill US troops. But the damage is done with sheer repetition and media acting like government scribes. We can expect to see more incidents like the closing of the Houston consulate and the Chinese government will retaliate. It's frightening that otherwise sensible people can be turned into a mob, ready to believe what they're told and declare a country which has done them no harm as an enemy, but that's not accidental. The history isn't new. When the Chinese revolution occurred in the late 1940s, there were arguments in America about who lost China as if China were the property of the US and not a sovereign state. But that is what results from white supremacy as it plays out in foreign policy. China's history with Europe and the US is not a happy one. The Delano family, for example, yes, FDR's grandparents, made a fortune trading opium. The British stole Hong Kong, and now 20 years after they left are acting like the good little lapdogs that they are and joined in using Hong Kong to destabilize China. Canada and the UK aren't alone. Australia has joined in the effort too, 
and even raided the home of a New South Wales Parliament legislator who had done nothing except advocate for better relations between the two countries. I have referred to four of the Five Eyes nations, the UK and its settler colonial offshoots, the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And as the Imperial Project reaches a fever pitch, they all work ever more closely together. While US senators say that Chinese students should only be allowed to study Shakespeare and not science, yes, a senator really said that, and babble about communist party member, China forges its own way and of course incurs the wrath of the US as it does. China and Iran have an agreement to give each other aid and oil, and that means that the US tantrums over sanctions will cause suffering in the short term. But the targets will be the ones that may prosper. But that, of course, is why the aggression will continue. I think it's extremely important that those of us who call ourselves members of the left know where we ought to stand. We must always be in opposition to the US NATO allied vassal state aggression against China and the rest of the world too. We cannot be confused. Remember that when the US speaks of human rights, you are hearing from the country that has more of its population incarcerated, some 2 million people than any other country in the world. Military spending larger than that of the next 10 countries combined. It allows police to kill a thousand people every year. COVID-19 has killed thousands, impoverished more, and its profit-making healthcare system is proof of a lack of human rights. We have to call out war propaganda whenever we see it and hear it, and not allow ourselves to be drawn into bogus arguments. We cannot use the first person when thinking about government statements regarding China or any other country. Our interests are not those of the rulers, and we must never forget that. Thank you very much. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.